0: Are possible to answer. I want to know if you're not comfortable saying it to the whole group, please email me or see me afterwards. Like I said, I will be creating a second edition to this book when I put this study on my Her God Speaks podcast in January. So you can help make it better by being honest about the parts that were just, you know, I remember doing like Beth Moore studies and stuff, and thinking, I don't have a clue what in the world she wants me to write, and it really bothered me, and I'm sure I've written questions like that, so I do want to know. Any questions about the homework before we get started? Yes. There is a listening guide. It looks like this. It has a skull and crossbones and a crown on the front. Nobody got it. Okay, uh, we didn't get- I didn't. I didn't email it, you guys. <laughs> uh, I, I copy right now. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's what you were telling me earlier. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Go ahead and do that. Yeah, that's my copy. I can just I can get started though. Let me take a little screenshot of it. Actually, go make copies and we'll yeah. just wait. We'll do more discussion in the groups. All right. Amy's going to run and make copies. That was 100% my bad because we had the holiday and I just didn't send them the listening guide. All right. So (laughs) I'm entitled. (laughs) So anyway, any questions about the homework? If not, I'll go back over there and you guys can chit-chat and we'll wait till Amy gets back with the listening guide. But if there's any things that you guys... I'm here... Do you have any questions? Yes. I have a question from um, it was number nine and the third layer. We're reading about a day of things And there's a chapter about the you die, and then you to on child. So would you a Yes. yeah, that is confusing. And one thing to keep in mind, and I'll probably readdress this when we walk through it today, but is it's poetic language. Um, so he's employing categories that people can understand, right? So we have no category for living forever. It's not something we've ever known anybody that's lived forever. <laughs> it's not a thing, right? And so what he's doing there is he's employing this idea of long life, right? So particularly in their culture, um, infant mortality rates would have been off the charts. Lots of, lots of babies died in infancy. Um, and so he's kind of, what he's drawing a picture of is, you know how we go to a funeral and um, if somebody's older, let's say they're, they lived at 95, right? It's still so sad and they're going to be so missed. And so there's obviously so much grief but we will often say things like, he lived such a, a good, long life. He was ready to go, be home, go home to be with the Lord, right? There's this sense of, he lived, he lived a really long time. This is the way it is, you know? And you contrast that to if you've ever been to a funeral of a child. It's the most horrible, horrible thing um, Even when we put our celebration of life spin on it, which we, and there's good reasons to do that, but it's still so, so sad. And so Isaiah's drawing this picture. He's like, let's say you were to go to a funeral, and it's somebody who's who's lived a whole life. They're 95, and everybody's just crying and weeping and saying, oh, it's like he was just born yesterday. He hardly lived at all. He didn't even get to experience this, and he, he never got, we just... The time with us was just way too short. And so it would be like the funeral of a 95-year-old having the feel of a funeral of a, of a small child, right? And he's saying, he's painting that picture to uh, try to present to people who have no category for living forever, the, the, the feeling behind that, kind of the, the picture of that. So when he says, it'll be like somebody, what's the exact wording there? Um, 6520, I think it is, right? Yeah, so in 6520, he says, um, a nursing infant uh, will no longer live only a few days. So, again, for us, man, the technology we have to keep little vulnerable, premature babies alive is just mind blowing, right? That didn't exist back then. Lots of babies were lost. All right, so a nursing infant will no longer live only a few days or an old man not live out his days. Indeed, the one who dies at 100 years old will be mourned as a young man, and one who misses 100 years will be considered a curse. So if you don't make it to 100 years old, it's basically like going to the funeral of a baby. Not that that's actually going to happen. Remember, this is poetry. He's creating word pictures for us um, that are employing Things we have no real capacity to understand have to be expressed in things we can't understand. That's what he's doing there. So um, there's another view which really doesn't hold much water anymore, even among like the dispensationalist thinkers of today, which would be more, they would call themselves progressive dispensationalists. Um, Kind of the old view is that, well, he's not talking about eternity. He's talking about the millennial kingdom. And that's not forever anyway, so, but that view just is, it's such a minority view anymore. Um, Even if you believe in a literal thousand-year millennial kingdom, very few would say that Isaiah is talking about that. Very few. Even among those who would still be okay with the label dispensationalist. So, does that help? Okay. Yeah, that's a tricky verse. Because in chapter 25, which we'll see is very clear, about death is swallowed up, (laughs) right? So, all right. Did I see her come back with? Amy, that was the fastest ever. Wow. Wow. She said she was already hot. I bet you're really hot now. (laughs) Okay. All right. Well, let's go ahead and get started. Uh, when I was <laughs> when I was younger, some of you would be like, "What are you talking about?" Uh, probably about I don't know when the last half marathon I ran was, but I used to run half marathons for like a span of about five years. I did the end of my thirties, and then my feet started being annoying, and I don't do that anymore. But uh, part of the training program. Uh, one of the training programs I did is you would do lots of running. Obviously, you're training to run 13 miles. But then you would have certain days mixed into the running days that were called active recovery days. And it was not recommended that you just sit on your butt and watch Netflix on your rest days, which is what I would prefer to do. But it was recommended that you still like go for a walk, or you do some yoga, or maybe you do some strength training, or just something that's it's not hard pounding, running, but you're still active, but you're recovering. You're letting your body rest. And I would like to tell you that today is an active recovery day. All right? We have been doing so much heavy lifting. We have been pounding the pavement. We have, I mean, we have covered so much like heady stuff so far in our study. And today, we're going to give ourselves a little break because all we're going to do is walk through these passages in Isaiah that, that are in your workbook. In fact, uh, you can just open to page 56, and we're just going to read through those. I typically um, type out everything I'm going to say. Today, all I've got is the, the, the text, and I have little notes on it, so that's either going to be better for us, and we're going to get out of here earlier or it's going to be way worse for us because I'm just going to add a whole bunch while I'm talking, <laughs> because I don't have the detailed notes that I usually do. Um, but yeah, we're just going to we're just going to read, and I'm going to point some stuff out, and so we're just going for a nice leisurely walk. Are we Are we good with that? I think you guys earned it. All right, so nice leisurely walk today. Okay, so I've got this little timeline on the front of your listening guide. Uh, Now, if we were to do a modern timeline depicting biblical eschatology, and hopefully when I say eschatology, you're not afraid of that word anymore. It just means end times, right? So if we were to do a modern timeline of the end times events, it would probably be pretty complicated, especially if you were trying to map onto it all the different views regarding Revelation 20 and the millennial kingdom and the tribulation and rapture and all the things, right? If you were trying to map that all in one timeline, it's quite a thing. But the eschatological timeline of the post-exilic Old Testament prophets, and when I say post-exilic, I'm talking about Assyria comes in and, and, and takes over the northern kingdom of Israel, Babylon comes in, takes over the southern kingdom of Israel, and the northern kingdom is scattered all over the place. Southern kingdom is carried off back to Babylon and Israel, this chosen nation, is, it's just exiled. It, and that would have been, back then, the death of a nation. The, just the death of a nation, right? And it was really tragic uh, when Babylon came in and invaded Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. And after last week, we should be really aware why that was such an epic tragedy, all right, so um, so when I say post-exilic Old Testament prophets, I'm talking about the guys that wrote and preached and ministered um, after the exile had taken place. All right, um, so the post-exilic Old Testament prophets, uh, and it's interesting. Isaiah died before the Babylonian exile, but he had a lot to say about it, and the entire second half from chapter forty on is a message to those in exile in Babylon. So he would be included in that that group. All right, so post-exilic Old Testament prophets and the Second Temple Jews. All right, last week we talked a little bit about how Cyrus uh, took over, what, Babylon, and so he actually allowed a lot of the exiles that were living in Babylon to return to Jerusalem and start rebuilding. So that's where we have Nehemiah, Ezra, the rebuilding of the wall, and then they rebuilt the temple. But even then, it was very, very common knowledge that this was not the, the glory returning to Jerusalem. It's not the new Jerusalem that we, were, that we were anticipating. So even they saw themselves in the second temple period, which Jesus came on scene, second temple period, they would have seen themselves as in exile still as well, all right? So this is, the, this is the group we're talking about. This is their timeline. This is their eschatological timeline. It's divided into two parts. Super simple. All right? First part is this present age. And for them, it was this present age of exile. Okay? It was characterized by kingdoms of violent, evil empires, wickedness, idolatry, rebellion. Okay? That should... Resonate with us. We still have certainly (laughs) a lot of that going on in our day. Okay, so the present age, and then the second big part is the future age of restoration. Right, so you got the present age and you got the future age. They would have thought of the future age in terms of the kingdom of God, right? So, and this is when Yahweh returns to judge and save so that God's people can live in God's place and join God's presence forever. Now, the the events that split these two big chunks of time are the day of the Lord, and I should have underlined the. It's the day of the Lord. Lots of little day of the Lord's that the prophets talk about when God intervened and overcame their enemies. Um, Egypt being drowned in the sea, that would have been a little d day of the Lord, right? But all of those little day of the Lord's looked ahead to a future the day of the Lord, when it would be the full and final overthrow and demolishing and destruction and judgment upon all of the kingdoms of violent evil empires, wickedness, idolatry, and rebellion that was uh, filling the world. In the Old Testament, resurrection is a little more vague right? The the Old Testament saints didn't have a a thoroughly developed doctrine of resurrection like we have. They didn't have 1 Corinthians 15. Um, They didn't have these, these clearer passages. But there was a general consensus that when Yahweh returned and restored the fortunes of his people, well, of course, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob And 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 together with all of God's faithful people, um, would be reembodied and raised to new life in God's new world. They don't talk a lot about this. Like Daniel twelve, you have a reference. There is a couple other references here and there, but there was a general consensus there would be a resurrection and it would be, uh, all of the righteous would be raised together at the same time. One resurrection, everybody gets raised, okay? Coincides with the day of the Lord. So the day of the Lord, resurrection, bam, we are in the future age of restoration, what Isaiah calls the new heaven and the new earth, all right? Um, speaking of resurrection, a good little example of kind of where their minds were. Uh, do you remember when Jesus, in John chapter 11, Lazarus has died, Jesus finally comes, way too late, and Martha's like, if you had been here, your brother would die. When our brother would not have died, and Jesus says, um, you know, he will he'll be resurrected. He'll be raised. And, and she says, well, of course. Of course he'll be raised in the resurrection at the last day. Because every good Jew of that time period believed that, oh, yeah, yeah, Jesus, he'll be, yeah, he'll be resurrected. We will all be resurrected at the last day. And what is she talking about? She's talking about the day of the Lord, and then God ushers in the kingdom of God, new heavens, new earth, all all of the things. Um, So, and underneath all of this whole timeline, if I were to have constructed kind of a foundation for it, underneath it all is this unshakable Jewish belief in the perfect justice and covenant faithfulness of the one true God. They just had this, just this intense, intense belief that God was just and that he would be faithful to every promise that he had made to Israel. So in this lesson, we are going to walk through some of Isaiah's prophecies and pull out what they reveal about this future age. So that's what we are going to zone in on. This is a description of quote-unquote heaven or the eternal state according to Isaiah and his contemporaries. Um, It would have, of course, also heavily influenced the view of heaven um, in the teachings of Jesus. And the other Old Testament authors. In fact, the more, you, the more familiar I become with Isaiah, the more I see it all over the pages of the New Testament, often in direct quotes, but many, many times in just these vague allusions. And you're like, man, Paul read Isaiah a lot. Jesus read Isaiah a lot. Peter read Isaiah a lot. John, as you saw this week, for sure read Isaiah a lot. Um, so we are looking here at, okay, what did an Old Testament faithful believer, post-exile, believe about heaven? Here we go. This is, this is what we're looking at, and I'm purposely not going to tie it into the New Testament too much today. We're going to be doing that um, as we look forward. Of course, I put it there, just a note, for them, this was this whole idea of heaven, of the future age. It was an earthly, embodied reality. So far, there are nobody's going up to heaven to live there forever with God. Not yet. Maybe in the New Testament we'll find that. So far, it hasn't happened. All right? So all of this stuff Isaiah's writing about the new creation, it's all here on earth and like actual human embodied people, not disembodied souls flying around playing harps in the clouds. This is here. This is here. All right? Let's just walk through. I got my paper. You guys got yours? Page 56. Let's go. All right. Let's start in Isaiah chapter 2. I love Isaiah chapter 2 because Isaiah chapter 1 is so depressing. You're like, man, first chapter, dude, you really started out with a downer. And then you get these little blips of hope, glory, goodness, beauty. And right there in Isaiah chapter 2, we have a really good one. All right. So, chapter 2, verse 1, it says, The vision that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the last days. All right, so there is indicating he's looking to the future. This is an eschatological vision. He's looking at that future age of restoration. It says, The mountain of the Lord's house will be established at the top of the mountains and will be raised above the hills. All nations will stream to it, and many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us about his ways so that we may walk in his paths, for instruction will go out of Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, he will settle disputes among the nations and provide arbitration for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plows and their spears into pruning knives. Nation will not take up the sword against nation, and they will never again train for war. All right, let's, let's see what's going on there. First of all, what, there's a lot of references to mountains and hills that are way up. And in, in this we should start seeing these hyperlinks now, right? Um, mountains were places where temples were built, right? They were, they were heaven and earth, overlap places. Um, Ezekiel refers to Eden as the mountain of the Lord. Sinai was certainly a mountain where God's presence came down. And we learned last week um, that the temple was built on a mountain. Not a very high mountain, but a mountain. And Jerusalem was viewed as um, the mountain of the Lord. So when he's talking about the mountain of the Lord, he's honing in on Jerusalem. He's honing in on specifically that heaven and earth space where God's glory dwelt in the temple. Of course, as he's writing, the temple is no more. So he's looking ahead to when it will be reestablished and rebuilt. And this is the amazing thing it would make total, if we're reading and he's like, all of Israel will be regathered and all of Israel will be drawn to the glory of the Lord and all of Israel will walk in his paths and all of Israel will just like be longing for his instruction. We're like, yeah, but he doesn't, that's not the focus. The focus is the nations, all peoples. And so the the scope is very wide. And I asked you a ridiculous amount of questions this week. Driving home, who is it? Is it just for Israel or is it for every, all the nations? Is it just for Israel? Is this for all the nations? And every question, hopefully you answered, is for all the nations. April, we get it. Stop asking, right? but I really wanted to drive that home because these passages have so been misinterpreted as, no, this is just, this is just Israel. This is just, the church is going to be gone. The nations are going to, no, 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 no. <laughs> the scope of this is that it's nations. It's all peoples. And that's crazy. It's incredible that these nations will turn to the Lord. They will turn to the Lord. So that's the first thing I have there, um, on on your thing. And when it says, come, let's go to the mountain of the Lord. He's going to teach us his ways. We can walk in his paths. Who's saying that? It's not Israel. The nations are saying that. Gentiles are saying that, right? And so this whole vision encompasses the whole world. This, uh, verse four, this is maybe one of my favorite metaphors in all of biblical poetry. (laughs) Well, I do love the refuge metaphor that recurs in the book of Psalms. But this, when it says they will, talking about the nations, which were constantly in conflict as they are today, says they will beat their swords into plows and their spears into pruning knives. So what they're going to do is they're going to take all of their weapons... Right, in our in our context, like all the nuclear bombs, all the missiles, all of the tanks, all of all of the 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 all the weaponry, and we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna melt it down and we are gonna craft out of all of that weaponry, we're gonna make some shovels and some rakes and some hose and well we're super advanced, so we would make like really cool tractors and irrigation systems, and everything that you would need to garden, to, to, to create a fruitful land. And so what is this hyperlinking back to? It's hyperlinking back to Genesis 1 and 2, right? It's hyperlinking back to the original human vocation of being God's immature, his royal representative stewarding his creation by spreading the beauty and goodness and fruitfulness of Eden across the whole world. And so the second thing um, on your listening guide there under Isaiah 2 is that wars will cease. There is going to be complete—you know, people just are so hungry for world peace. It is actually going to be a thing, <laughs> And I think this metaphor of, of the, the, the weapons becoming gardening tools is just such a vivid, beautiful picture of that. There's actually a Bible project video. I don't remember which one it is, but the people are there. It's an animation, and they're all holding like guns and knives, and then all of a sudden, the new creation like movement comes on, and, and all of the weapons turn into, they're holding shovels and rakes and I tear up every time. It's just beautiful. It's just like, wow, so cool. Love it. I'm sure it's one of the ones I recommended to you to watch, so you'll get there, you'll get there at some point in the study. All right, any questions about Isaiah 2? So we've got the nations turning to the Lord. We've got wars ceasing. It's a worldwide scope. It's a, it's a, the whole vision encompasses the whole world. All right, well, let's move on to Isaiah 11. It says, then a shoot will grow from the stump of Jesse. Again, this is Hebrew poetry, so he's not going to just go out and say who it is. He's giving us metaphors, right? We've got a shoot growing up from the stump of Jesse. Jesse was King David's dad, okay? And a branch from his roots will bear fruit. More Eden language. And the spirit of the Lord is going to rest on this branch. The spirit of wisdom understanding, a spirit of counsel and strength, a spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. His delight will be in the fear of the Lord, and he will not judge by what he sees with his eyes. He will not execute justice just by what he hears with his ears. Any mamas in the room who have recently had to navigate a dispute between your children in which you were not there. You do not have the backstory, but like this kid says this happened and this kid says this happened. You you don't have a clue what happened. Unfortunately, there's no camera in that room. And so you just have to base your judgment on like what you can see and what you can hear. You don't really know. And so there's a high likelihood that justice will not be served for the kid that was actually wronged, especially if you have a really good liar. If the naughtier one's really good manipulator, right? <laughs> and so it's saying there's a judge who's not just going to have to judge just on, on what he sees and what he hears, but he will judge, verse 4, he will judge the poor righteously and execute justice for the oppressed of the land. So those who are most vulnerable to injustice, he is going to serve ju- treat justly. He will strike the land with a scepter from his mouth and he will kill the wicked with a command from his lips. Righteousness will be a belt around his hips. Faithfulness will be a belt around his waist. Now the original readers of this would not have been able to connect the dots straight to Jesus Christ, but we certainly can and do and should. That is who Isaiah is um, prophesying about. He is the descendant of David, he is the branch on which the Spirit of the Lord rests on, and all of these things are true of. So what we have here is that there's going to be a perfect judge executing perfect justice for the poor and the oppressed. And if you've read, if some of you were in the Isaiah study with me, but if you read the first few, actually the first large chunk of Isaiah He talks a lot about how justice was lacking, and how the poor were trampled on. How the oppressed were not heard. There was um, because unless you had money to bribe the judges, unless you had money to bribe the leaders, you you were you were just who cares, right? And so there was a lot of social injustice going on. And I know it is really complicated. It gets really political and weird when we, as by and large in this room, probably conservative Christians, start talking about social justice because it can go wrong. But let me tell you something. God cares about it. And we might, just might, be able to find some common ground with those who have very different political views than ours in this desire to see the ones in this world for whom injustice is such a foreign concept. The poor, the oppressed, the vulnerable, the marginalized. We as believers ought to want justice for them. And there's an entire lost world that also wants justice for them. So we're often looking for what divides us, but there's this beautiful thing this desire for justice to be served that can very much unite us. And so one thing I'm challenging myself is I have this instinct. It's deep in my psyche because I've been raised the way I've been raised and the context I've been to just anybody who cares about social justice. I'm like, oh, too woke. Not my people. But then I open the Bible and I read about a God who cares about the poor, and he cares about the vulnerable, and he cares about the marginalized. He cares so much about social justice. So don't let the ways in which social justice warriors have lost their way keep you from being able to see these things in the Scripture because they're there, and it's a beautiful opportunity. You're like left-wing extremist neighbor— probably cares about a lot of the things you care about, too. Very different ways of going about the solutions, right? But there's some common ground to be had in this social justice thing. Some of you have teenagers who are maybe not buying your conservative, evangelical American worldview. I bet your teenagers care a lot about justice causes. And this is a place where you guys can find some common ground. And so just a beautiful, beautiful picture. The branch, what, what is so beautiful about this branch of the Lord is because finally perfect justice for the poor and the oppressed. All right. Let's move on to verse, um, verse 6. As some beautiful imagery again here. The wolf will dwell with the lamb and the leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf, the young lion, and the fattened calf will all be together and a child will lead them. (laughs) The cow and the bear will graze. Their young ones will lie down together. So you have little baby cows and little baby bears all hanging out, right? And the lion will eat straw like the cattle. Wait a second. I thought the lion ate the cattle. No, they're all going to eat the hay, <laughs> the straw. An infant will play beside the cobra's pit. So if <laughs> your little grandbaby or your little baby is out there playing with cobras. What do you tell them? Bad idea. Get away from there. You will die, right? No. Very different picture here. An infant, Playing beside the cobra's pit, a toddler will put his hand into the snake's den, and no mom will be like, don't do that! And be like, okay, that's cool, right? They will not harm or destroy each other on my entire holy mountain, for the land will be as full of the knowledge of the Lord as the sea is filled with water. All right, so what's going on here is that the most vulnerable the children and the most violent lions and bears, right, poisonous snakes. The most vulnerable and the most violent are seen as living in perfect harmony. Right? So the thing I wrote there on your listening guide is that creation harmony is fully restored. There is true shalom. Every aspect of existence will come into perfect peace and wholeness and wellness. Now, how is this possible? I think the end of verse 9 gives us a, a clue as to how, how how does this happen? Well, the whole earth, the whole earth is flooded with the knowledge of the Lord. This is repeated in um, Habakkuk two fourteen. It talks about the whole earth being flooded with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. It's a beautiful, beautiful picture, um, and that's why everything, everything that was disrupted in the fall, is restored to perfect harmony. Any questions about chapter 11? All right, let's move on to Isaiah 25. We need a little bit of context for this one. All right, so in, from Isaiah 24 to Isaiah 27, Isaiah's painting a picture of two cities. Kind of think of it as a tale of two cities. All right, city number one, he calls a few different things, but most often he calls it the lofty city and he calls it lofty because it's prideful. It has set itself up against God. It has set itself up against God's people. Um, And this city becomes, the lofty city becomes a ruined city. And as you're reading, what you see is that this is an archetype of rebellious humanity. It's an archetype of the present evil age. All right, so we've got the lofty city representing rebellious humanity. And then you have the good city, which is the new Jerusalem. This comes in and replaces the lofty ruined city. And the new Jerusalem is the poetic uh, picture of the age to come, where God's kingdom reigns over all of redeemed humanity. So if you put it on our little timeline, um, the lofty city would be the, um, the present age on the left, and the new city, the new Jerusalem, is the future age on the right. Right? All right, so that's what's going on in this passage. Let me go ahead and pick up in chapter 25, verse 1. It says, Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name, for you have accomplished wonders, plans formed long ago with perfect faithfulness. For you have turned the city into a pile of rocks. A fortified city into ruins. The fortress of barbarians is no longer a city. It will never be rebuilt. So he's talking about the lofty city that has become the ruined city. Verse 3. Therefore, a strong people will honor you. The cities of violent nations will fear you. For you have been a stronghold for the poor person. A stronghold for the needy in his distress a refuge from the storms and a shade from the heat. So he's reflecting on the experience of the, the, the faithful, the, the remnant, the ones who are trusting in God in the, the old, pre, the present age, right? God's been a stronghold. He's been a refuge. When the breath of the violent is like a storm against a wall, like heat in a dry land, you will subdue the uproar of barbarians. As the shade of a cloud cools the heat of the day, so he will silence the song of the violent. On this mountain, the Lord of armies will prepare for all the peoples. All right, I'm a foodie, so I really love this part. A feast of choice meat, a feast with aged wine, prime cuts of choice meat, fine vintage wine. Let's stop there and see what we've got so far. All right, so we have more references to that perfect justice that we saw back in chapter 11. So the poor, the needy, the ones who have been just mowed over by these violent evil nations. God is going to save them. He is currently being a refuge for them, and he will eventually uh, subdue all of the evil nations and they will be brought into His perfect peace and justice. So let's talk about this verse six. This lavish abundance, so lavish. And this, we're going to see this lavish abundance themes repeated as we continue to read on. Uh, several years ago, for my birthday, my husband surprised me with um, the chef's table experience of, at Victoria and Alberts at the um, Grand Floridian. In Orlando, it's one of the premier Disney upscale restaurants, and let me tell you, it was amazing. It's twelve courses. We were—they uh, had the the kitchen, so you could—and then they had this room that our table was in. It was all glass; you could see all that was going on in the kitchen, and we had our own designated waiter bringing us stuff like straight from the chef, and the chef would come in and out and talk to us about the food, and there were the wine pairings, and just all of the things, all of the things for 12 courses. And not only was it the finest ingredients like that I'd ever seen, I mean, she. there was one plate I remember had a tiny little square of beef. And I don't remember what it was called, but she just talked about how these cows were treated a certain way and they came from this way. It was like so much marbling in the meat. I'd never seen a piece of meat marbled that much. It was because these these cows were like living in a day spa or something. Um, but all of these really exclusive ingredients, and of course they weren't just thrown on the plate. It was art. Every plate was just pure art. And you better believe I posted a bajillion pictures on Instagram of all that food because it's so pretty. Um, but when I read a verse like this, that's what I think of. It's just like lavish. I mean, just over the top. Nobody really needs that. <laughs> like, just over the top, over the top, over the top. It's like chef's table at Victoria and Albert's special birthday thing, 12 courses, all the finest foods. And that is the kind of of, uh, imagery that Isaiah is giving us throughout these passages, just lavish abundance. All right, verse seven. On this mountain, again, Jerusalem, New Jerusalem, he will swallow up the burial shroud, the shroud over all the peoples, the sheet covering all the nations. And when he has swallowed up death, Once and for all, the Lord God will wipe away the tears from every face and remove his people's disgrace from the whole earth. For the Lord has spoken. On that day, it will be said, look, this is our God. We have waited for him and he has saved us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let's rejoice and be glad in his salvation. So here's the clearest reference you have almost in the entire Old Testament of the fact that in the new creation, death is swallowed up. It is gone forever. We also have this beautiful image of God wiping away tears. So death will be gone and suffering will be no more. Grief will be gone. And there's not a human being on the planet that that just doesn't deeply resonate with. Like, that is what we all want so desperately. And Isaiah paints this beautiful picture for us. All right, let's move on to chapter 35. I'm going a little slower than I should be, probably. Verse 1. The wilderness and the dry land will be glad. The desert will rejoice and blossom like a wildflower. It will blossom abundantly, and will also rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it, the splendor of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the glory of the Lord, the splendor of our God, strengthen the weak hands, steady the shaking knees, say to the cowardly, be strong and do not fear. Here is your God. Vengeance is coming, retribution is coming, and he will save you. It's interesting, for the Old Testament saints, God's coming judgment, the day of the Lord, it was always talked about as such a positive thing. It was a big sigh of relief. (sighs) He's coming. He's going to judge. I've been thinking a lot about how different that can be from the way we tend to talk about it these days. Just food for thought. It was always a always a positive, big relief for when the prophets talked about it. Uh, Here's your God. Vengeance is coming. God's retribution is coming. He will save you. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute will sing for joy. For water will gush in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The parched ground will become a pool, the thirsty land springs, the haunt of jackals in their lairs, where, in the haunt of jackals in their lairs, there will be grass and reeds and papyrus. So we just have more Eden, more Eden, more Eden. That which is dry and barren is transformed to become watered and fruitful. So to sum up kind of what we see here, we've got more lavish abundance, we've got joy, we've got the presence of the Lord filling the earth. And notice how he highlights physical conditions, blind, deaf, lame, mute, generally have no cure, but they will in the new Jerusalem. They will in the new Jerusalem. Continuing in verse 8, a road will be there and a way, it will be called the holy way and the unclean will not travel on it, but it will be for the one who walks the path. Fools will not wander on it. There will be no lion there, no vicious beast will go up on it. They will not be found there, but the redeemed will walk on it, and the ransomed of the Lord will return and come to Zion with singing, crowned with not just joy, but with unending joy. Joy and gladness will overtake them, and sorrow and sighing will flee. And so we have there that nothing unclean, will enter this place. Uh, No fools will enter this place. It won't be given access. It will be a place of total safety, right? So the lions and the beasts, which for us, I've never worried about lions and beasts on a journey, but for them, back back here, like they traveled on these roads and wild, like lions and beasts were like a real threat, (laughs) right? We also have another reference to the end of all suffering and sorrow there at the end. Sorrow and sighing will flee, and they'll be replaced by unending joy. Moving on to chapter 51, it says, For the Lord will comfort Zion and comfort all her waste places, and he will make her wilderness like what? Eden. So we've been assuming that Isaiah has Eden on his mind. And now we have confirmation that sure, yeah, absolutely, 100%. He'll make her wilderness like Eden and her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her thanksgiving and melodious songs. So there's more repetition here, right? We've got that lavish abundance like Eden um, that's invading what's dead and transforming what's lifeless into something that is full of life and abundance. Um, more joy and gladness. Verse four, it says, pay attention to me, my people, and listen to me, my nation, for instruction will come from me and my justice for a light to the nations. There They're there again. It will, I will bring it about quickly. My righteousness is near. My salvation appears and my arms will be justice to the nations. The coast and islands, and that's a reference in Isaiah, that's how he metaphorically would refer to the furthest parts of the world. The coasts and islands will put their hope in me, and they will look to my strength. So again, we have the nations being drawn to God's instruction and experiencing his salvation. Moving on to 65, and I am picking up the pace on purpose because we're running out of time. All right, verse 17, for I will create, here we go, here's the big mamma jamma right here, I will create a new heavens and a new earth. What, again, is Isaiah hyperlinking to there? What passage? Genesis 1, right? Right? Genesis 1. The past events will not be remembered or come to mind. Then be glad and rejoice forever in what I am creating, for I will create Jerusalem to be a joy and its people to be a delight. It's such happy words that he's stringing together here. Verse 19. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. So even God is rejoicing. <laughs> the sound of weeping and crying will no longer be heard in her. I love how many times it's repeated that suffering will be no more. Verse 20, in her, a nursing infant will no longer live only a few days, or a man not Uh, live out his days. Indeed, the one who dies at a hundred years old will be mourned as a young man, and the one who misses a hundred years will be considered cursed. So we talked about that um, before. Again, Isaiah is drawing us into word pictures that we have a category for, right? So if we went to um, uh, someone who died at 95, we would not mourn the same way that we would mourn someone who died at one, right? And Isaiah is saying, in the new Jerusalem, if you go to a funeral, if you were to, let's say, hypothetically, you were to go to the funeral of someone who died at 95, you would, you would be as, as, as sad and mourning as if it was the funeral of someone that was one. And what he is expressing there um, is that the, from infancy to old age, the power of death is totally destroyed. It's totally destroyed. That's the, that's the point. He's just pulling these images from funerals and death to try to help us understand. Verse 21, people will build houses and live in them, and they will plant vineyards and eat their fruit, and they will not build and others live in them. They will not plant and others eat, for my people's lives will be like the lifetime of a tree. My chosen ones will fully enjoy the work of their hands. They will not labor without success or build children destined for disaster, for they will be a people blessed by the Lord along with their descendants. Um, first, once again, Isaiah is not picturing an eternal worship service in the sky. He's picturing a real life in a real world. There's houses, and there's vineyards, and there's people, and there's relationships, right? So that's, that's all going on. Uh, but he's, he's almost like word-for-word word quoting from Deuteronomy 28. We don't have time to look that up. But you can jot it down. Deuteronomy 28 verses 29 and 30. In this passage, Moses is outlining all the blessings if the people obey God's commands and are faithful to his covenant. And then he lays out all the curses if they are not faithful to obey and keep covenant. One of the curses if they did not obey would be that they're going to plant vineyards and other people are going to come in and eat all their grapes. They're, gonna, they're going to have children, and other people are going to come in and take them. They're going to build a house, and somebody else is going to come in and, and live in it. So that was one of the—almost like almost word for word—one of the curses of um, not um, being faithful to the covenant. And so what, what Isaiah is doing here is he is um, he's painting a picture of a life that is wholly right with God— that is experiencing the fullness and blessing of covenant faithfulness. All the blessings that Moses promised the people, if they would be faithful to the covenant that God had made with them, all of those blessings are going to be poured out on the people in the new Jerusalem. There is a huge focus on enjoying that for which you have labored. Work is not a result of the fall. Work that is not satisfying, Work that does not fulfill, that is a result of the fall. The thorns and the thistles is a result of the fall. But in the New Jerusalem, work, as it was always intended to be, will be restored. And there'll be a connection between what you actually do and the benefit that you get to enjoy, which unfortunately is not always how it is. A little note on verse 23 when he says, um, "'You will not bear children destined for disaster.'" Uh, Alec Maltier, he's written one of my favorite Isaiah commentaries. He says, There is no darker cloud over a parent's life than to see tragedy touch a beloved child on whom love and hope is set. Such will never be the case in the new Jerusalem. And I just thought that was such a tender observation. So, so... um, Gosh, it's hope there. Such hope there. Verse 24... Even before they call, I will answer. And while they are still speaking, I will hear. I want to know, is anybody in this room waiting on God to answer a prayer? Yeah. I think we would probably all raise our hand. You have. And some of you, it might be, I mean, it could be a decade. You've just been praying and praying and praying. The picture that's painted here, even before they call, I will answer. While they are still Speaking. I will hear there's this total oneness, this harmony between God and his people. there's nothing in the way anymore there's no, there's, there's no brokenness there's no we, we we live in this world in which evil is is present and it's complex the complexities of how God's will interfaces with evil and and sin and the realities of our world I, I couldn't even begin to stand here and, and explain that um, but it makes It makes for a lot of waiting when we pray. And there will come a day. It won't be like that anymore. This beautiful oneness between Creator, our creator and and, and us. Verse 25, the wolf and the lamb will feed together. The lion will eat straw like the cattle. We've seen that before. Isaiah's repeating it. But the serpent's food will be dust. Reference there, Genesis 3. So that serpent will still be eaten his dust. Uh, Right? (laughs) They will not do what is evil or destroy on my entire holy mountain, says the Lord. So there's total oneness with the Lord, and there's also total oneness within creation itself. And so a good summary of what Isaiah is laying out here is that the life that is yet to come will be a life that is totally provided for, totally happy, totally secure, and totally at peace. Again, This is the longing of every human heart. And why we start every gospel presentation with hell, I do not understand. That is really important, needs to come up in the conversation, but maybe we start with this. Maybe this is what every human being longs for, and maybe the God of all creation desires for them to be reconciled to him, that he might make this a reality in the life of every single person he's created. It's just a little bit of a shift. Do not mishear me. Hell, we start where the Bible does. And we focus on some of this Eden stuff. I don't know. I'm still brewing on that. Okay, Isaiah 66. Oh, this... Whoa, this, this, this passage, we're just going to hit the treetops here. Knowing this is kind of how the whole book of Isaiah ends, uh, the parallels between how Revelation ends and how Isaiah ends is way cool, if you wanted to take a look at that. Uh, knowing their works and their thoughts, I have come to gather all the nations and languages. They will come and see my glory. So it's echoing what we saw back in chapter 2. I will establish a sign among them, and I will send survivors from them to the nations to Tarshish, Put, Lud, those who are archers, uh, Tubal, Javan, and the coast and the islands far away. Those who have not heard about me or seen my glory, and they will proclaim my glory among the nations. All right, so what's going on here? Well, verse 18 is essentially a statement of God's purpose for the world. He wants to gather all nations and all languages to come and to see his glory, to experience new creation. And who's going to accomplish that? Well, he says, I'm going to establish a sign among them. Most New Testament, right? Scholars believe that the sign Isaiah is referring to, of course, he didn't know what it was, they wouldn't have known what it was, but from our perspective, it's, it's the cross and the empty tomb, right? I'm going to establish a sign among them. and I'm going to send survivors. This will be the remnant, the faithful remnant of Israel. I am going to send them out to the nations far away, to those who haven't heard, and they are going to tell them. <laughs> They're going to tell them. And look what happens in verse 20. They will bring all your... Okay, this is... I mean, for us, it's not crazy, but for the original audience, he's, going to, he's calling these Gentile nations brothers. It's to be all your Gentile brothers, shocking, from all the nations as a gift to the Lord, horses and chariots and litters and on mules and camels to my holy mountain in Jerusalem, says the Lord, just as the Israelites bring an offering and a clean vessel to the house of the Lord, I will also take some of them, again, referring to the Gentile nations as priests and Levites, says the Lord. Whoa. All right. It's one thing you're calling them Brothers. It's another thing you're saying you will take of the Gentiles and make priests and Levites. For just as the new heavens and the new earth, which I will make, will remain before me, this is the Lord's declaration, so your offspring and your name will remain. And then look at this. Different wording is used in verse 23. That's a really significant shift. All humanity will come and worship Me Throughout the entire book of Isaiah, it's been Israel, particularly he's focused on Judah and Jerusalem, the southern kingdom, Israel and the nations, two separate entities. But here at the end of Isaiah, they are brought together and the focus is all humanity. You know where else the focus was all humanity? Genesis 1 and 2. Genesis 1 and all humanity made in God's image commissioned to be his royal representatives in the world, spreading the beauty and goodness of Eden throughout the whole earth. Well, we're right back there. Verse 23, all humanity will come to worship me from one new moon to another and from one Sabbath to another, says the Lord. And what we pull from that, and this is so incredible, it's hard to wrap my mind around, but the new earth will consist of a worldwide worshiping community of redeemed humanity from all nation from the furthest corners of the earth will be brought together to worship king jesus well they wouldn't have said king jesus we do right we're we're new testament people okay and we'll talk more about that next week all right so we got through isaiah any questions about anything we read so kind of a chill time, a chill lesson right kind of chill did we feel like it was an active recovery? Okay, yes. uh huh Uh huh Mhm. Yeah, I would think, because remember this is, and it's hard to get our mind around the setting, right? So this was delivered to the people living in exile. So they've been carried off to Babylon, all their hopes and dreams of a Davidic kingdom, this temple where the glory of the Lord was, all it's just been like, what is going on? And Isaiah 40, you know, you basically see that they really believe God had completely abandoned them forever. And so God's coming to them and saying, no, 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 I haven't abandoned you forever. I'm coming back and I'm going to do everything I've promised to do. Um, and so this is, he's saying on that day, um, we're going to declare, look, we waited for him. We languished in our waiting. We suffered in our waiting. We waited for him and he has saved us. So I think it's a reference to That long agonizing period of exile, of just feeling like God had just well, He had. I mean, the glory had left the temple. It was destroyed. And so they're having to cling to these promises that God was gonna return. He is going to establish his rule and reign once again. Heaven and earth are gonna overlap somewhere, right? And so that I think that would be a reference to that. Yeah. Any other questions? I have one little thing before we close, but all right. Um, I came across I was listening to a Tim Keller sermon a few years ago. Um, and really, you have, there's two guys you can thank for this whole heaven thing, this whole study, it's Tim Keller and Isaiah. <laughs> they started it. Um, I put in the conclusion a little story of the very first time I ever heard that, like, heaven is here, heaven comes down. I'd read it a thousand times in Revelation, but never, it never clicked, I guess. It was Tim Keller. But in this sermon that was so um, paradigm shifting for me, he closes by talking about um, African American spirituals and how they, I mean, they are just, if you're familiar with any of them, they are just full, full of references to heaven and the resurrection and the final judgment. And Howard Thurman, an African-American scholar and educator, gave a lecture in 1947 called The Negro Spiritual Speaks of Life and Death. And he gave this lecture, it was an important lecture, because during that time, and even today, it was argued that these spirituals were too otherworldly, that the focus on heaven was actually harmful, that it made the slaves detach from their present suffering, which actually made their oppression worse not better. And Thurman countered such arguments with these powerful words that I thought would be a really good way to close today. I'm quoting here from his, um, from his lecture. It says the facts have made it clear that this faith served to deepen the capacity of the slaves for endurance and their ability to absorb their suffering. It taught a people how to ride high in life, how to look squarely in the face of those facts that argue most dramatically against all hope and to use those facts as raw material out of which they fashioned a hope that their environment with all its cruelty could not crush. This enabled them to reject annihilation and affirm their right to live. The line from that that just it just grips me is when he says a hope. They 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 crafted a hope that their environment with all its cruelty could not crush. Do you have a hope like that? A hope that cannot be crushed. What we experience in the present is deeply connected to what we believe about the future. And what was true for Israel living in exile, and it's true for us living in our own version of exile, as we await the return of our king and the full restoration of all things, it is still true. This is still our future hope. And next week, we're going to look at how the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, what it does to this very simple timeline here. There's a few little things that happen that are really, really important for us to understand. So we'll be working with this. We'll be adding what we learn from Jesus and the Gospels and what, his life, what, is, what impact his life has on this. All right? Any questions before we close? All right, let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for your word, and um, gosh, I thank you that even when I don't really have a fancy spin to put on it or (laughs) any, um, you know, cute, alliterated outline, man, just standing and just reading it, there's a power to these scriptures. There's such a beauty to them. Um, and, you know, we have to work hard to understand these metaphors. A lot of them made perfect sense to Isaiah and his contemporaries. They don't make a lot of sense to us, but God, I thank you for how you, um, you give us the understanding that we need to take these beautiful pictures and these metaphors and these truths that they represent and to, to impress them on our own hearts and minds, um, because we live in our own exile, we live in our own um, in our own version of, of having having been carried off to Babylon. And um, there's certainly a lot of the vestiges of this present age of darkness and evil and oppression that are still way heavy on our hearts every day. And so God, I pray that these truths would just continue to come to mind. And as we move on into the gospels and and we, we keep pulling these threads through the whole of your word, I pray that this would become even more clear and more beautiful and more compelling than it has ever been before. We love you. We thank you for the hope that we have in Christ. And we pray that we would become so enthralled with the beauty of what you have in store for your people, both now and through eternity, that it would compel us to go out into the world and to proclaim this good news of this beautiful new creation that you have in store for those who, um, who follow Jesus. We love you. We thank you for all that you are and do. In Jesus' name, amen.